time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, December 21st, 2012. Limping in, limping in here. Looking forward to my daughter's 16th birthday. That's right, it's her uh, sweet, sweet 16 birthday party today. It's the um, end of the world Sweet 16 party that we'll be enjoying tonight after I get off the air. Seems like a weird juxtaposition, but that's how things go here at the Roseboro family. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. This program teaches you how to listen with discernment, teaches you how to open up your Bible and see if what somebody is telling you is really what God's Word says or if they're making merchandise of you and teaching false doctrine rather than teaching what God has revealed in His Word are teaching the doctrines that they've made up in their own mind. Yeah, strange stuff, or worse, uh, teaching doctrines of demons. That, <laughs> Yeah, that stuff's no bueno. That stuff will send you to, well, you know, Hades lickety-split. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. This is literally our last edition of Fighting for the Faith for the year. And uh, I'm going to be taking all of next week off. We'll be back, I think, on the 2nd of uh, January. That's uh, when we're scheduled to uh, come back. And so during, if you listen to Fighting for a Pirate Christian Radio during the uh, uh, normal time slot, we'll be put slotting in best of programs during the uh, Christmas season. This will also give some of you a chance to catch up. Just saying, there's, <laughs> you know, we, we put out a lot here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, I've noticed that there are some folks that... Uh, you know, that send me messages from time to time basically saying, you know, I'm still trying to, yeah, I know, you know, I have no clue how it is we even produce this much radio, to be uh, to be honest with you, but we do it. So on a day in and day out basis. So just so you know, that's what our schedule is going to be. And, uh, and you know, of course, unless like, you know, the Mayan apocalypse occurs like an hour later than, <laughs> than midnight tonight. Yeah, it is. Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, Mayan apocalypse thing. Yeah, I survived the Mayan apocalypse, and all I got was a lousy T-shirt. I didn't even really get a lousy T-shirt, but I thought that was a fun slogan. All right, so here's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Since it is the day that supposedly the world was supposed to end, we have no choice. And and I, I'm saying that literally. We do not have a choice. We must listen to part of the latest video from William Tapley because otherwise I wouldn't be able to play the um, REMs, It's the End of the World, and we know it, and I feel fine. Um, but see, i got to tell you, I am not thrilled with his latest um, episode on his uh, YouTube channel. And the reason why I'm not thrilled with it is because I think William Tapley is, well, backtracking and trying to um, – cover up a few things. And what I mean by that is this, is that uh, he has decided in this end of the world episode of his, because of course everybody knows the world was supposed to end today. Apparently um, God didn't get the memo, but uh, the end was supposed to end today. And I'm disappointed with William Tapley because he's going to spend part of this video. In fact, pretty much the whole thing, we won't listen to the whole thing, trying to go back and um, piece together more of the signs 
that uh, uh, size video G- Gangnam style is uh, is giving us messages about the Antichrist. Now his first crack at this, I mean the the proof that he provided us was well to say that the prophetic butter was spread very thin. That would be an an, an an understatement. I mean, I don't even think he was using prophetic butter. I mean, that's how bad it is. But he's decided to go back because I think he's been receiving criticism basically saying, listen, the things you pointed out in that video as proof of the Antichrist arriving Gangnam style, that just didn't turn out to be. And so now he's going back and having to you know, buttress his argument. So I, I got to tell you, I'm not thrilled with this particular video and uh, and so I'm playing it hesitantly, but I I feel like I must because well everybody knows the the world was supposed to end today, so it's more out of obligation than because I'm thrilled to play William Tapley's latest thing. Okay, then we got a news story uh, the uh, coming out of the uh, the UK. Yes, those we talked about this a little bit, but they're getting more press. The uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, and some of his colleagues are planning on doing the unthinkable. They're going to tweet out the Christmas message on Twitter. It's unheard. No one has ever done this before. <sighs> yeah, so we'll take a look at that. Um, and then we've got a Cindy Jacobs video. This is a weird one. Um, Have you ever noticed that when you're reading the Bible, okay, and you get to stories of humans having encounters with angels, okay, Usually, those encounters with angels, uh, the angel leads off the conversation, and the conversation begins with these words, do not fear, or fear not, or don't be afraid. Um, The reason why is because generally when human beings who are sinful and unholy and, and fallen come in contact with an angel, an angel is not sinful, an angel is holy and radiates and reflects the glory of God in certain ways. But anyway, so usually when sinful human beings come in contact with angels, the uh, conversation must begin with the words, do not fear, because human beings have a tendency to, you know, get get all, yeah, you, you get what I'm saying here. Well, not Cindy Jacobs. Apparently, um, she herself is claiming that she has received personal VIP concierge service from an angel named Luis. <laughs> yeah, no joke. Yeah, you just got to hear it to believe it. And then what we'll do is we'll end up hour number one by uh, doing part two of our work in debunking Paula White's false teaching regarding generational curses. Yeah. And uh, we'll point out uh, more of what's going wrong with this particular uh, teaching. And then we're going we're gonna to take the pirate ship into dry dock, uh, and we're going to l- end with two good sermons, one an Advent sermon and the other a Christmas sermon. The first one, an Advent sermon preached by uh, Pastor Ernie Lassman, entitled Prepare the Way of the Lord. It's a, it's a uh, sermon from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, 1 through 6, talking about John the Baptist. And then we will end the uh, our the year off with uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman of Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska, and his Christmas sermon entitled, The Word Became Flesh. And it's a sermon based upon the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. That's how we will end off our final episode of Fighting for the Faith for the... For the not for the... For, for the year. I see I'm getting tired. <laughs> I'm so tired. I need, I need a vacation. So I, I, and, and just so you know, um, I, uh, will be sending out the, uh, scripture catechis- catechesis and prayer things on a daily basis, 
But for the most part, I'm not going to be doing much in the area of tweeting or Facebooking during the uh, during the holiday season. Uh, this is on purpose so that I can get some rest because actually social media is part of my regular job. And so um, I'm going to try to, you know, I'll keep an eye on what's going on in there. If you want to send me uh, program segment suggestions and things like that, I'll be keeping an eye out for it. But I'm going to I'm going to try to make a concerted effort to not be doing too much of the social media thing as a means of uh, recharging my battery. But, uh, you know, how, how do I plan on spending my, uh, my downtime? Um, reading and writing, reading and writing, um, and it's doing stuff that I have been really wanting to get to. Um, f- for instance, I've um, <clears throat> slipped into some bad habits uh, regarding my Hebrew, and so I'm going to take some time during the holiday to um, <clears throat> reinvigorate some of the better habits when it comes to Hebrew. Yes, you can fall into bad habits, and uh, and that is is that I've let my uh, <clears throat> verb parsing get sloppy. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So you know, I know all of you. I, you you if you've experienced this, you understand the frustration that this is. You know that you can read it. The problem is is that you're getting sloppy with your verb parsing. So I need to go back and kind of tie some things up uh, when it comes to uh, my reading Hebrew. Make sure that I get all my uh, verb parsings correct and uh and don't cut corners and am lazy so plan on you know kind of lubing oil on uh, on one of my biblical languages so that <laughs> that sounds well that's a fantastic way to spend your hot yeah i i know i'm still a nerd and will always be a nerd and lord willing will die a nerd so with that we're going to uh dive into the program proper which requires me to play this Great, it starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and aeroplanes. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I am a hurricane, listen to yourself, turn <laughs> I'm too tired to keep up with the song today. But it is the most appropriate song, being that today is the Mayan apocalypse. me a college right it's the end of the world as we know it it's the end of the world as we know it it's the end of the world as we know it and i feel fine yeah, I think we're going to have to play this at my daughter's uh, Sweet 16 end of the world uh, uh, birthday party. All right, so this is to introduce William Tapley's latest video entitled Antichrist Numerology in Gangnam Style. Now, he's going to tell you that he made this video because so many of his subscribers suggested that he look at the numerology in the video. But I, I know for a fact that he's also received criticism from his previous video um, regarding the fact that the, that uh, his claims from the original video didn't quite pan out in reality. So I'm just wondering if this is uh, William Tapley going back and trying to, you know, clean things up a little bit. Um, but that's just my speculation. But I got to tell you again, I'm a little bit disappointed in this video. But um, <clears throat> with that, here's William Tapley, third eagle, third eagle of the apocalypse, man, am I tired, and co-prophet of the end times to discuss <clears throat> more Antichrist prophetic insights regarding the... <clears throat> 
video Gangnam style. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. About a month ago, I made a program on two hugely viral videos called Gangnam Style and Call Me Maybe. You know, come to think of it, Rick Warren, I mean, he sent out those tweets in, 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 in announcing that, you know, size uh, Gangnam Style has been his ringtone since, like, July. And, if, in fact, there was – when he made the, the, the rounds, you know, regarding the release of the, the latest update to the book The Purpose Driven Life – I mean, he was in the green room, I think at CBS, and you know, and was pointing out to everybody that his ringtone was Gangnam Style. I mean, I think William Tapley, it, well, he has a responsibility to reach out to Rick Warren to let him know that Gangnam Style is, in fact, announcing the arrival of the Antichrist. <laughs> I would love to see that conversation on Twitter. Just saying. And I pointed out that those two videos are announcing... The arrival of the Antichrist. Yes, you did, and boy, was that silly. And several of my subscribers sent me messages saying that I should look at the numerology in those videos. And you were right. Remember our, our floating rule here. If, if it, by the way, if it happens to be that any of you listeners to Fighting for the Faith are the ones who pitched this idea to William Tapley, <laughs> I will be very disappointed. Remember our rule. Don't feed William Tapley. Don't feed him. We continue. And I thank you for pointing this out to me. The numerology in these videos are trying to tell us that the Antichrist will be victorious in the end times. In other words, that 666, which is the number of the Antichrist in Bible prophecy, will defeat 555, which is the number of Mary's rosary. <laughs> My head hurts. And of course, we know from Scripture that the, just the opposite is the fact. 555 will defeat 666. So first of all, let's take a look at this scene from Gagnum Style, which proves that this video is about these end times, because... This video shows us the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. No, no. No, no, no. He has the video up on the screen. But it's, a, it's a still frame from the video. And there's two hot Korean chicks. And uh, each of them is standing between two horses. And then there's Sai right there in the middle doing his Gangnam style dance. Apparently, I, I don't know where this was shot, but you know it looks like one of those indoor equestrian facilities. But okay. Now in this scene inside a horse barn exercising area, of course we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. One. <laughs> <laughs> they. Why would they be the four horsemen of the apocalypse? It just looks to me like they were trying to set up a shot that had some symmetry to it. Because, um, correct me if I'm wrong, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that each of the horses are different colors. You know, you got the pale horse, the, the red horse, and, you know, you get what I'm saying here? All of these horses look very similar to me. One, two, three, four. One of the more ridiculous scenes occurs early on in the Gagnon-style video. Does anyone catch the irony of that? William Tapley talking about something being a ridiculous scene in somebody else's video. 
the irony, by the way, is not lost on me. I hope it wasn't lost on you. And that's what I call the flying garbage scene. I think this also indicates that Psy is impersonating the Antichrist. (laughs) Really, I had no idea that when the Antichrist arrives that he's going to be throwing garbage at people. All the garbage flies into his face. And, of course, later on in the video, we see him sitting on the toilet. And we also see him lusting after a girl exercising in short shorts. I think he is trying to tell us that this Antichrist figure is a very lowly, despicable person. No, I think that that part of the video pretty much just tells us that Sai is, uh, well, a red-blooded Korean sinner, um, male sinner, just like all the other male sinners out there. Associated with garbage, the toilet, and so on. But it's interesting that in this flying garbage scene, the most prominent number appears on one of the columns. Let's take a look. Hang on. Okay, so the flying garbage scene, I see. Okay, yeah, uh uh-huh. Now on this flying garbage scene... (laughs) Why does anybody pay attention to this man? The most prominent number is on this column over here, and that is the number 18. Yeah, Let's I take it. a closer look. Oh, yeah. Zoom in, please. Now, 18 can be broken down as 8 plus 1 equals 9, or, of course, as the Antichrist number of 6 plus 6 plus 6. Oh, really? <sighs> it just makes you wonder. I mean... I mean, uh, he's retired. That's how he has all the time to do this. But, I mean, seriously, the, could you imagine what the average day for William Tapley must be like? Scanning and scouring the news, looking for numbers that could somehow tie to his crazy views of the uh, coming apocalypse? So we see that Psy in this video is representing the Antichrist. And he has an antagonist. And that is the man dressed in yellow. And when this man dressed in yellow arrives on the scene, all the girls run away in fear. He symbolizes... Kind of like Georgie Porgy. ...the enemy of the Antichrist, and he soon is defeated. But who does this man in yellow represent? First of all, of course, yellow symbolizes cowardice, and he is a loser. But the number associated with him can be found on his license plate. Let's take a look. What? Now, when Mr. Yellow arrives on the scene in the parking lot, the most prominent <laughs> number is, of course, on the license plate. Oh, yeah, I'm looking at it. Yeah. You see a double five on the right-hand side and another five on the left. Now, in this dance-off between Psy and Mr. Yellow, Psy, of course, is victorious, and Mr. Yellow soon vacates the scene in his 555 Convertible. Yeah, but you're skipping all the other numbers in between. There's a five. It's five three like zero eight nine five five. Um, just ignores all the other numbers, and because there's five or three fives in the number. So in this satanic version of the end times, we see that. Antichrist, that is Psy, because of the number eighteen that appeared on the column in the garbage scene. Who was associated with a number 666. Yeah. 
defeats the yellow coward who was associated with the number 555. All right. So the Antichrist, according to Psy, the Antichrist is going to defeat Mary's rosary. In other words, this video, which is announcing the arrival of the Antichrist, is trying to tell us that the Antichrist will defeat Mary's rosary. And, of course, that is the opposite of what Scripture says. Where, again, does the Bible mention Mary's rosary? This is Satan's propaganda. Of course, yes. Right. Because there's lots of people who, uh, after watching Sai's video, are going, Yeah, Satan, way to defeat Mary's rosary. And now, let's take a look at the romantic interest of Sai, who is also a symbol of the Antichrist. Let's take a look at this girl who has ten numbers and symbols on her shirt. Now, in this subway car scene, the girl who was attracted to Sai wears a very prominent number 22. Yeah, she does. It's right there on her dress. She also is wearing a Christian cross. But actually, there are a total of nine circles on her blouse. Let's take a closer look. <laughs> what? <laughs> now, in this view, we can... <laughs> I, I can't believe that he's done this. And see nine of the ten numbers on her shirt. There's a 72. This looks like an H or an N or maybe some other kind of symbol. This is a 45, a 22. There's an I or a 1 under here. There's a G, upside down, 34. There's a B and an 11 here. On the back of this sleeve is a number 33. Now, in this view, you can see the three most significant numbers, 33, 11, and 22. Okay, I can't, I can't watch it anymore. I just can't do it. Because, I mean, he's at this point, like, taking literally different screen captures of this woman's blouse that has circles with numbers on it. And you just know where this is going to go. It's going to be a so-called prophetic train wreck. Ah, <sighs> man. And what is the moral of the story here? Um, William Tapley, he frequently appears here at Fighting for the Faith, and I use him as a cautionary tale. And here's the idea, okay? Um, for all of his allusions to Bible prophecy and things like that, um, over and again what we find with William Tapley is the same thing that we find with everybody who seems to be a, a prophecy expert. And that is is that they have lost sight of Jesus a long time ago. Jesus is in the rearview mirror so far in the past. Well, it's kind of like that. Remember that joke about being in Kansas, Kansas, you know, it's the only state where you can watch your dog run away for two weeks. It's kind of like that. It's it, so Jesus is two weeks away in the rearview mirror in the state of Kansas. And they keep barreling down the highway, trying to figure out codes and numerology and, and all this kind of stuff. And so it's a supreme distraction. Listen, Jesus is coming back. The end of the world will happen. And you know when it's going to happen? I know exactly when it's going to happen. It's going to happen when none of us expects it. And that means it could be, I don't know when. <laughs> you know, it's, and so what is the church supposed to be doing until he returns? Real simple. Not cracking any end of the world apocalyptic codes that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. And when he comes back is when he comes back. He's going to come back when he's good and ready, when he's ready to do it. And you know what? It could be 
next week. It could be a thousand years from now. It doesn't matter. The mission of the church hasn't changed. The mission of the church to make disciples of all nations, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins and teaching all that Christ has commanded us to teach, that hasn't changed. In fact, that's what we're supposed to be doing until the literally the minute before Christ returns. And hopefully he'll find us when he returns doing that very thing. It's it's like just so simple. So don't get schnookered. Don't get distracted by bright, shiny, prophetic things, okay? Or don't get worried about these things. It's All of this stuff is going to happen in, in God's good time. In the meantime, tell everybody about Jesus. Don't tell them about codes and prophetic, you know, the headlines and things like that. Who cares? Because the one thing I've learned over the course of my lifetime is that every single so-called expert in prophecy who claims to have cracked the Bible code has turned out to be wrong. So don't worry about it. Jesus is going to return when he's good and ready. Let's let everybody know about the forgiveness of sins that they have in Jesus Christ. Tell them to repent and believe in him so that they can survive the last day and spend an eternity with him in his eternal kingdom. That's what we need to be doing. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. we got a few things we need to finish out this hour with. We'll go a little bit long, and then we got two great sermons on the in, in hour number two. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy.
Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages, over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Hello, you've reached the office of Pirate Christian Radio. How can I help you? Um, yes. I have a problem. Oh, uh, what's the problem? My Christmas tree is ugly. Well, that's not much of a... And I was wondering if you had anything that could make it look nice. Well, yes, actually. Pirate Christian Radio is selling our very own Christmas bulbs this year. Oh, those sound nice. It gets better, though. Not only do you get a red Christmas bowl with Christian Radio's logo on it, but it comes adorned with a handmade beaded topper that contains eight real Savorsky crystals. It sounds so pretty. How do I get one? Uh, Very easily. Just go to piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. Thank you very much. You're uh, very welcome. Have a Merry Christmas. Warning, distraction is one of the means by which Satan gets the church off topic and off mission. Yeah, we don't need any code breakers in the kingdom of God. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And again, let me thank every one of you who's been supporting us. We could not do what we do without it. All right, moving along. From the Telegraph in the UK, headline reads, Hark the Herald Angels Tweet as Archbishops Sent Out to Take on Twitter. Oh, man. <clears throat> this is written by uh, John Bingham, the religious, uh, religious affairs editor over at the Telegraph in the UK. Here's what it says. Dr. Rowan Williams and Dr. John Sentamu, uh, as well as the incoming Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, will all be delivering their Christmas Day sermons simultaneously from their pulpits in Canterbury, York, and Durham, 
and over the social media site of Twitter. The stream of snippets from their messages will be live tweeted from the cathedrals as they deliver them. The Church of England has asked its members in parishes across the country to join in by tweeting snippets from services on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. They are hoping that a torrent of tweets containing the phrase, Christmas starts with Christ, or a short version, CSWC, that's the hashtag, CSWC, will dominate traffic on Twitter over Christmas to spread the Christian message. So they're hoping to... uh, have a groundswell there, you know, that it'll be trending on Twitter. Other churches have already joined in the experiment yesterday. Bishop um, Angelos, the leader of the Coptic Orthodox Church in the UK, who tweets as Bishop Angelos, uh, at Bishop Angelos, began posting messages using the Christmas Starts With Christ hashtag. Late uh, last week, Dr. Williams used the idea of sending a tweet as an unlikely analogy for the birth of Christ, saying both were small initiatives, which could have far-reaching impact. Hi. <laughs> Whew, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, Twitter started yesterday, and nobody has ever done anything like this. <sighs> yeah, uh, <clears throat> there's a reason why, by the way, that the Church of England has been, well, not having its membership grow, but watching it dwindle and dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. One of the major reasons, by the way, is the mixing of church and state. Yeah, that's not a smart idea, period. And the their, their recent vote, okay, that, that they had regarding having female bishops, you know, the backlash from that kind of proves the point. There were members of parliament who were basically saying, how on earth does the Church of England plan to reach its constituents if it doesn't even allow some of its constituents to be, you know, yeah, see, that's, see the problem is, is that <clears throat> I think that the Church of England should formally cut all formal ties with um, the uh, British government and then change its name from the Church of England to the Church of Jesus Christ in England so that there's no mistake who's really in charge of the church quote of England. You see, there's, there's a language problem and, you know, and plus it's not exactly, they were not exactly known for their fidelity when it comes to proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And granted, there are some that, uh, some churches within, uh, their, you know, their group that do that, but there's a, there's a large portion of them that don't. And so they're trying to be culturally relevant. And the thing about Twitter, it's not, it's not like a radio broadcast, okay. Or a television broadcast in the sense that, um, you know, it's broadcasting, you know, to everybody and you just got to tune in. It's, it's, it's easier to catch a radio broadcast than it is to actually get a tweet. Somebody has to actually follow you on Twitter and, yeah, so yeah, I just don't think they quite get the point of uh, how Twitter works. So they, yeah, this is their big initiative for Christmas. <clears throat> Personally, I don't think they're going to be trending. That would just be my bet. All right, moving along. Chief, mate, what do you want to do tonight? Time for a Cindy Jacobs update. Can he try to take over the world? The Mickey and the Brain. Yes, Mickey and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genius has his mice. The Mickey 
Cindy Jacobs or anything that has to do with the uh, the uh, NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation and their plans of taking over the world, Cindy Jacobs being one of their primary generals. Well, on her television program, boy, I can't I can't believe that anybody thinks that this woman has hears from God or anything like that. I mean, Patricia King is almost more believable than uh, Cindy Jacobs. But this is just. Weird. Um, going back to the beginning of the program, in the Bible, when people run into angels, generally the first thing out of the mouth of the angel is fear not or don't be afraid or something like that. Because from the point of view of human fallen sinful human beings, coming into the vicinity of uh, a holy angel is, well, something that could cause your knees to knock together. Well, not Cindy Jacobs. Yeah, no. Um, <clears throat> no, she has a... she ran into an angel by the name of Luis, who actually gave her VIP concierge service. <clears throat> Here's Cindy Jacobs to explain. And we were going into the nation of Venezuela. And at that time, um, uh, we were supposed to be picked up, and Mike didn't go with me. And, went with another you woman. Know, I went with a leader. woman. And it was about 10 o'clock at night, and I got into this airport, and nobody was there to pick us up. So what happened was the day before cell phones that they closed the airport down. And we tried to use the telephone, but we didn't have any for, uh, Venezuelan currency. And so we couldn't, buy a phone card. we couldn't buy a phone card to use the telephone. So we sat down in our suitcases and I told my friends, I think it's time to pray in tongues. I, we're in trouble here. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, don't just pray. Now, if, if you're real, if you find yourself in an airport in Venezuela and they've shut the place down and you don't have any Venezuelan currency to buy a phone card <clears throat> or you don't have one of those cell phones that works in other countries, don't just pray, pray in tongues. And notice that that's her husband kind of filling in some of the extra details as she regales us with this fine story. So we were sitting there just praying in tongues and this short, little, nice looking Latino guy came up, looked at us, Mike. And said in perfect English, hello, I am here to welcome VIP guests. May I help you? Mm-hmm. And so we go, yes. I mean, really pounced on him. Yes. And so we told him we don't have a phone card and nobody's come to pick us up. He said, oh. And he, had, he did like this. I have a phone card. And so he went to the telephone and he said, I'll call the hotel. So he called the hotel, and he explained to them our problem. And so he's standing right next to me, and I'm on the telephone, you know, and I'm talking. You go like this, talking. And, and so all of a sudden, in a lull of the conversation, he taps me on the shoulder. He goes, oh, by the way, my name is Luis. And he goes, I'm an angel. And so I'm kind of, I'm like, I'm talking the whole time. I, all of a sudden I go, you're an angel? And he goes, yes. Do you know from... Up there, yeah. I go. You're yeah, Luis was probably somebody who escaped from a Venezuelan insane asylum. Angel from 
from Vermont there? And he goes, yes. I mean, I was, I was shocked, Mike. I was mm-hmm. kind of in a state of shock, you know. And so then, you know, he arranged the hotel was going to send a driver out for us. So we go out and, and uh, the driver from the hotel comes and we turned around to thank the man and he was gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that doesn't sound like anything I've read. I mean, even, you know, when the angel Gabriel appeared to the Virgin Mary... Um, fear not was the thing that came from his mouth. No, they, they've got Luis, the, you know, the, obviously somebody who escaped from a Venezuelan insane asylum, you know, helping people out and then disappearing, probably because the people from the, uh, the institution were able to catch up to him just as you were getting ready to get in that car. Oh, man, serious. Ah, anyway, this is another distraction. This is absolutely uh, a total distraction. And Cindy Jacobs, I don't believe she's had an encounter with an angel, even for a second. And it has everything to do with the fact that she teaches false doctrine. And to boot, she's a false prophet. She claims to be a prophet. She claims to speak, thus saith the Lord. And she has, well, <clears throat> missed it more than once. She is not somebody that you should consider to be a Christian sister with whom uh, with whom you should be having fellowship, yet alone receiving instruction from or taking her story seriously as if, you know, the stories that uh, revolve around her life have anything to do with biblical Christianity. She is a complete distraction and a false prophetess and a heretic to boot. So that wasn't a, you know, an angel from heaven, that was probably Luis, the you know escaped insane asylum you know it, you know inmate who found his way to the airport and just happened to know a few things about helping some people out, you know. But it wasn't an angel from heaven. We can we can rule that one out just a priori. Last segment for the first hour, continuing with our debunking. Of Paula White's false teaching regarding breaking generational curses. Here's our Paula White update music. Paula White, she really does work hard for her money. I mean, and she has got the Bible-twisting thing down to a science. She works hard for the money. Okay. Yesterday, we did part one of our two-part little series here on debunking Paula White's false teaching regarding so-called generational curses. Now, I'm going to build on the foundation that we laid yesterday, and you're going to find that as we begin today's installment, that uh, that Paula White is going to make reference to 
uh, that uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, blessing and cursing. This is not to be redundant. This is just where we cut it, and it you know, kind of builds off of yesterday. But when we went back yesterday and looked at the passages that she was quoting regarding these so-called generational curses, um, she was not quoting anything in context. And here's the idea, is that false teachers, and you know, not only do they add to Scripture or take away from it and subtract from it, but the other thing that they do is they will their doctrines can't actually be found in any clear passage. So and the only way that you can get their doctrines is by basically ripping a verse out of context here, stringing it with this verse that's been ripped out of context from over there, and then snatching that one from way over there, and then stringing them all together as if they all hang together in some kind of a coherent way. And then the idea then is is that it's the narrative that's you know that the false teacher is giving as they're stringing these verses along out of context. That is is where their teaching is. It's actually not found in the Bible itself. For instance, okay, how do you know that, um, you know, what would I say? Okay, here's the idea. How would you know that Jesus is God? Now, a few weeks ago or a while ago, I actually did an entire segment where we went through the different passages that clearly say that Jesus is none other than God in human flesh. Okay, and you'll notice that the teaching itself regarding the deity of Christ was in the the clear language of those passages. It was not ambiguous. It said that Jesus, even though by na- he is by nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Things like that. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the idea of the deity of Christ is established based upon clear teaching, and the, the doctrine itself can be found in the grammar, in the text themselves. False teachers, their doctrines can't actually be found in the grammar, in the words themselves of Scripture. So, because you know, it, it's not sound doctrine; it's false doctrine. So, what they do is is that they they'll rip these verses out of context, of completely pour new meaning into these passages, and then tell you, you know, this narrative that 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 explains the theology that supposedly connects all of these passages together. But you can't go to a verse that says any of the things they're saying. For instance, yesterday, Paula White was talking about how you need to take authority with your words and break generational curses. But you can't find a single passage of Scripture where God said, you need to take authority with your words and use your words to break generational curses. The reason why you will never find a verse that says that is because it's not what the Bible says teaches. And Paula White is just a very, very skilled veteran at twisting the Bible and teaching theology and doctrines that are not actually found in scripture. You can't, so many of the things that she makes claim to, you can't actually go and into the Bible and find what she's saying there. That's the danger of it. So that's where we're going to, you know, that's kind of the setup for today's installment of this and and pay close attention to what she's doing. She's going to literally, we're going from Deuteronomy to Job to Proverbs to Romans. And over and again, the theology is not in the Bible passages. It's in her narrative as she's stringing them together. So here we go. Here's Paula White. Have you ever wondered why you love God 
but your life is not working for you, for your family, your finances. Remember, this is about generational blessings. It's about your family, about your seed as well. The decisions you make today don't only impact you, but they impact all those that you love, all those that you will produce, all those that are in your lineage, your succession. Let's examine a deeper look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. It says that blessing and cursing is set before you. Blessing is from the Hebrew word B-A-W-R-A-K, Barak. And, and we often think of it as to kneel in adoration towards God. That is one definition. But the other part of that is the benefits and the blessing that is given by God to man. So when he's saying choose blessing, he's saying choose the benefits, the goodness the favor that's what it breaks down okay now notice what she's doing here yesterday on today on yesterday's edition of fighting for the faith we put deuteronomy 30 back in context and showed that this has nothing to do with breaking generational curses and yet she's taken the time to try to figure out what the hebrew word for blessing is and what the hebrew word for cursing is as if somehow Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19 is teaching us that we that the the future our future depends on our ability to bless or curse with our words yet the passage doesn't say that it doesn't say it at all okay the theology that she's teaching is not a biblical theology it's a theology of her own making and it's not found in scripture it's found in the words she's saying so just because you can say, oh, well, Deuteronomy chapter um, uh, 30, verse 19, gives us the word for blessing and cursing, it doesn't mean anything. doesn't mean anything. What does the passage say in context? And when you look at it back in context, it doesn't say anything she's making it, trying to make it say. The goodness of God given to man by God. Curse, on the other hand, in the Hebrew is K-E-L-A-W-L-A-W. You know I'm not even going to try to pronounce these, but it means... Vil- yeah, it's it's Kalala. It's kal- that's the, the Hebrew word for curse. But so what? This passage isn't teaching that we can cr- create blessings or curses using our words. That's not what this text is saying at all. Vilification. To vilify means to lower in the estimation or the importance it means to utter slanderous and abusive statements against it means to defame so here is what's important if you choose blessing you choose the benefits of the goodness of god given to you if you choose cursing you are choosing to be lowered in estimation and value you're choosing to be slandered because remember either heaven or hell are coming in agreement with you and if two yeah, again, either heaven or hell are coming in agreement with you. Again, what passages in the scripture teach this doctrine clearly in the grammar itself, uh, in the words of the Bible? Answer, there isn't a passage that teaches any of this. There's a reason why this doctrine hasn't appeared until recently in church history. The reason why is because this is not a biblical teaching agree is touching anything it will come to pass you're you're choosing to be defamed the main vehicles for curses and for blessing is words now it's not again um where does the bible say that the main vehicle for blessings or curses is words answer it doesn't and this is kind of the pivotal part where you got to pay attention to what she's doing here she has made an assertion 
the main vehicle for blessings or curses, those are words. And so she's asserted this without actually teaching it from Scripture. And now she's going to go and she's going to selectively find proof texts that mention something to do with your words or your tongue as if they validate the assertion that she's made. But they don't. They don't teach it at all. In fact, the way she presents them, they assume her – she quotes them out of context assuming that they – are, that they are in agreement with her theology, but there isn't a passage that actually says what she just said. Not the only vehicle. I'm going to co- cover others, but the main vehicle. That's why Job said, I spoke against myself in the weariness of my own soul. And often we speak against ourselves because the thing. And, see, see, that's, she just said, see, that's the reason why Job said, I spoke against myself in the weariness of my own soul. She's She's referencing uh, Job chapter 10, verse 1. But when you put it back in context, that's not the reason why Job said those words. It's not the reason at all. Let's take a look at the context. Job chapter 10, verse 1 is what she's referencing. Let's put it in context, and we'll go to Job chapter 9, starting at verse 27. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not I am not so in myself. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of man? Are your years as a man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand? You fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Now, this is important, okay? When you look at the entire story of Job, what was the reason why Job experienced the destruction that he experienced? Was it because he cursed his life with his words? Not at all. No, the reason Job went through what Job went through is because God and Satan um, were basically um, having a showdown, okay? Uh, Satan wanted to sift him, you know, believe that God was protecting him, and Satan believed that uh, that Job would curse God to his face if God stopped blessing him. So the reason why Job experienced all of this stuff is not because Job said words that cursed his life or that he was blessed because he said words that brought blessing to his life and broke generational curses. Nothing of the sort. That has nothing to do with what he's talking about here because when you read the story of Job, you realize that what befell him uh, had nothing to do with his words or cursing or things like that. So what Paula White is doing here, again, she's taking these verses out of context and stringing them together, and her theology is in the narrative between the quotations of the verses, but the theology she's preaching 
can't be found in Scripture when you put when you search for it. You know, you, can, you won't be able to find a single passage that says any of the things that she's saying. We continue. The thing that we fear the most will come upon us. Proverbs eleven nine says, "A hypocrite with his mouth destroyeth his neighbor, but through knowledge shall the just be delivered." Proverbs. Now, point this out here. Proverbs eleven nine. With his mouth, a godless man would destroy his neighbor. Does that is this is Proverbs eleven nine teaching that you know if you say a curse, you know, using words, that all of a sudden destruction will happen to your neighbor? Nope. That's not what this passage is saying at all. A godless man can destroy his neighbor with his mouth by what? Lying against his neighbor, gossiping against his neighbor, slandering in his neighbor, things like that. That's how a godless man would destroy his neighbor, not by because there's power of blessing and cursing in his mouth. Proverbs 11.9 is not talking about that at all. But notice here that, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. It doesn't say by Blessing with your tongue are the righteous delivered. No, it says by knowledge. You get it? We continue. 15.4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. Okay, now she's found another verse out of context. Proverbs 15.4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness, uh, perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Okay, what's this talking about again? Is it talking about magical properties of cursing and, and blessing? No. This is talking about perverseness in the sense of speaking lies, slandering, not telling the truth, gossiping, tearing somebody down, that kind of stuff that people do with their tongues. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Now, this is an off-quoted passage by these types of teachers. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, as if somehow there's magical properties of death and life and but that's not what the saying at all. Again, this is consistent with all the other passages in Proverbs that talk about how basically using your tongue to speak evil, to lie of your neighbor, slander him, tear down, disclose his secrets, things like that, tear, you know, destroys somebody's life. That's what's talking that's what's being discussed here again in Proverbs 18:21 and when you look at it, it's clearly not saying that there's magical properties of life and death in your tongue and you have to speak life or you know, speak words that are in agreement with, uh, with, with heaven so that you have blessings or if you speak the death over yourself, the curses will come your way. That's not what this passage is saying at all. You just need to look at it in the, in the overall context of what's going on in Proverbs. But every single one of these verses ripped from context, none of them say or teach the theology that she's teaching. And there's no clear passage that says the things that she's saying. Now, here's what's so important. It is critical that we line our mouth up and I'll continue with scripture because the apostle James is going to come back and say, if we can't control our tongue, our whole spiritual experience with God, our religion is in vain, that, that it's, it's utterly useless. So we're going to understand that there's so much power in the tongue but here's the key. The key. No, it's, again, there's so much power in the tongue. She's talking like as if the tongue has magical properties or miraculous pro- No, that's not what is being discussed here. Very natural understanding here being taught even in James. Key is not getting the tongue to speak, but the ear to hear. If you can hear right now by the Spirit of God. But what? What God is saying to you, that you're not a victim to life. That you're not a victim to circumstance. That I don't care where... What? If I can hear what the Spirit is saying to me that I'm not a victim of life or circumstance, what are you talking about? 
There is no passage that teaches any of this. Where you've been and what you've gone through, how many people in your family have carried down through the sins of your forefather? Because I'm going to teach you the difference between transgression, sin, iniquity, and how Jesus Christ came to give a divine exchange to remove all of that from you and your family. No matter what has been passed down, yes, your words ultimately change it because you can't even get saved without words. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that he's the son of God, you'll be saved. To confess with your mouth literally means to make a covenant with your mouth. No, that is not true at all. The Greek word there is homologeo, which means to say the same thing. It's a confession to say the same thing as God. Yeah, I'm guilty. You know, that I'm guilty of being a sinner and I confess you to be Lord and Christ and things like that. Let's take a look at Romans chapter uh, 10 real quick here. And to put this back in context so you can see what's really going on here. Romans chapter 10. Okay, <clears throat> starting at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness that is based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to take uh, bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. That means to be declared righteous. So this verse 10 clearly says that you are saved or justified when you believe, and with the mouth one confesses is saved. So the idea is what's what's in your heart, your belief in your heart springs forth words that confess that Jesus is Lord. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice that in this passage that confessing and believing are practically synonyms because they go hand in hand. If you've been regenerated, if you've been born from above, then, you know, you will confess Lord the Lord with your mouth because you already believe him to be Lord in your heart. That's what this text is saying. has nothing to do with teaching a special uh, principle regarding the power of saying words. That's not what's going on here at all. Every time you speak, you're making a covenant. But here's the key. Are you speaking? No. Uh, by the way, i got to challenge that again. Flag on the play. No. Every time you speak, you are not making a covenant because the word for confess here is not to make a covenant. Hamalagao means to say the same thing. That's what this. T- that's uh, man. She just she she just rattles these you know assertions off like machine gun style. And they're hard to catch some of them because it happens so fast. But no. Every time you speak, you are not making a covenant. There is no Bible passage that says that. Mm what the spirit is saying. This is so vital because it doesn't just impact you, but it impacts your children, your children's children. And according to the word, you have the ability or the authority, as I've already taught you through the word. Yeah, we've already explained how you totally hijacked the word exousia and basically just told us what the Greek word exousia means and then made all these assertions based on the definition without any passages that say any of the things that you were saying. You have the authority to reverse that curse because of the... No, you don't. 
the price that Jesus paid. He became a curse that you might receive the blessing of the Lord. Now, as we've studied, we found out that the main vehicle, it's not the only one, and I'll teach you more, but the main vehicle for releasing blessings and cursing are words. Our words, according to Proverbs chapter 18, have the power of life and death. No, they don't, because when you look at it in context with what's going on in that passage, it's not saying that our, our words are magical things that have the power of life and death. And so when we begin to speak, either heaven is coming in agreement or hell is coming in agreement. No, there isn't a passage that says this. Because we have authority that has been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, because we have authority. Yeah, Again, you never proved that yesterday. That's why Job said, in the weariness of my soul, I spoke against my... No, that's not why Job said that. Because when you understand the details of the book of Job, they don't jive with your theology here. Myself. The worst thing that we can do is speak against ourselves. The big Oh, give me a break. Biggest enemy is not only outside, it's on the inside. Because all Don't say bad words about yourself or bad things might happen to you. A, a house might fall on your head. Ultimately, what I believe about myself, what I believe about what God's word has to say about me, has more influence and power and authority than what anyone else is saying against me. This is just flat out magic narcissism. Those words can be broken by the blood of Jesus. And I'm going to show you how. Oh, give me a break. Now, James points this out and uses such vivid imagery as he begins to show us in James chapter 3, verse 5 through 10. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter. A Notice when you read James 3 in context, it's not teaching any of the magical principles regarding your words that Paula has been telling us about. A little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body. Watch what he's saying. If you can't control your tongue, it defiles, corrupts, ruins, spoils, wastes. That's what that word means. The entire body. And set seteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. But the tongue no man can tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Right, exactly. And your false teaching here is an example of how the tongue is an, you know, full of deadly poison. You are literally speaking words of death by teaching false doctrine and things you ought not to teach. You're not engaging in exegesis. You're engaging in Bible twisting by ripping all of these passages out of context and then weaving them together in a tapestry of deceit. This is, in fact, James is warning about the kind of thing that you're doing right now. Therewith we bless God, even the Father, and therewith we curse men, which are made after the similitude of God. Now, verse 10 is where it's so important. Out of the same mouth proceeded blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. So James here again emphasizes the tremendous power. Yeah, when you look at James in context, he's not talking about power in the magic sense that you're discussing. This has to do with how you use your tongue to, on the one hand, praise God and bless the Lord, and then in the next moment, you're gossiping, slandering, lying, backbiting, and tearing somebody down with that same mouth. That's what he's talking about. That words have to affect people. Let me show you. 
your father said you're stupid. And so now you're sitting here on your third degree. You've got two masters, your bachelor, but you truly believe you're stupid. Your first boyfriend called you ugly. So you've been through a myriad of this is ridiculous. Men, but you believe you are. So do you think that Jesus died on the cross to break the curse of somebody calling you ugly? Unbelievable. The way you break that curse, by the way, it's real simple. You forgive as you've been forgiven. When somebody hurts you and slanders you and says false things about you or tears you down, it's not that you break their words by going, I bind those words and I break that curse by the blood of Jesus or anything. No, 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 no. They've sinned against you. You forgive them just as you've been forgiven in Christ for the sins that you've committed. That's how the curse has been broken, is that God broke it for us by becoming a curse for us on the cross and dying for our sins so that we can be forgiven. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Notice she makes references to the blood of Christ She's not teaching you to forgive as you've been forgiven, but instead engage in magic. Oh, your tongue has the power to break curses, so you break that curse in the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, and da-da-da-da-da. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. You are ugly. Your mother said you'll never amount to anything. You believe that you are worthless, that you have no value. Now, take into consideration the fact that God said you're the apple of his eye. What? Really? Unbelievable. God says you're... Yeah, by the way, it was Jesus. When he came out of the waters of the Jordan River after being baptized by John the Baptist, the voice of the Father said, that you are my son in whom I am well pleased. He has not said that to me, and he has not said that to you. We are made pleasing before God by the shed blood of Christ. We are not the apple of God's eye, according to Jesus... We are all born children of the devil, dead in trespasses and sins. This is a dangerous teaching. Not only is it magic, not sound theology, it's narcissistic to the hilt. Fearfully and wonderfully created in his image. That God says you can do all things through Christ Jesus. That God says in James 1, 8, that you have the wisdom of God. And if any man lack wisdom, let him ask. Him. Notice that this is Joel Osteen's teaching too. You know, stand in front of the mirror and declare affirmations about yourself. Yeah, this is, this is the word of faith heresy. You create reality with your words, both either negative or positive. This isn't biblical theology at all. In fact, this is the kind of narcissistic nonsense that leads people to hell. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Two good sermons to end off the week and our year here at Fighting for the Faith. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? 
Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off of cheapo airs already low prices right down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support pirate christian radio so again piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code code, click on the ad banner, and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs. Okay, we're back. We're well into hour number two here at Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. We're going to take the pirate ship in to dry dock with a couple of good sermons. One, an Advent sermon, and the other, an actual Christmas sermon. And you're thinking it's not Christmas yet. Yeah, I know. I just went into the archives. (laughs) All right, let's do this right. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. We have two good sermons for you today. The first of them comes to us via Messiah Lutheran Church, Seattle, Washington. Ernie Lastman presiding. The name of the sermon is entitled Prepare the Way of the Lord. The text that he will be preaching from is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And then I'll introduce our second one too, and that's um, a uh, sermon from... Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska, Brent Kuhlman presiding. The second sermon will be entitled, The Word Became Flesh, and it's taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Now, as you listen to these sermons, I'm not going to interrupt them because they're very good, but pay close attention to this distinction. We've listened to some really bad Christmas sermons um, in the the weeks leading up to uh, the Christmas season. With that, compare what you've heard in the bad sermons that we've reviewed recently to what you're about to hear. Notice how each of these pastors sticks close to the text and preaches Christ from these texts and focuses us on him. Whereas the the bad sermons we've been listening to, they have focused you on you and they've misquoted, mishandled, and inserted things into these texts that are not there. 
neither of these men engage in that kind of tomfoolery. Instead, they're all about preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins, even from Christmas or Advent texts. So with that, let me go ahead and kill the music. And uh, what I need to do here uh, is read for you the uh, the gospel passage that will be the, basically the backbone, form the basis of the first sermon that you're going to hear from Pastor Ernie Lastman. And that is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Here's what the text says. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of, uh, of Eutrea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the text that forms the basis for the sermon that you're about to hear. Here is Pastor Ernie Lassman and his sermon entitled, Prepare the Way of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon for this morning is based upon our gospel lesson, Luke 3, especially and primarily verses 1 to 6. My fellow redeemed in Christ... In the season of Advent, of course, we're all thinking about preparing for Christmas. It's the same every year. And we know that such preparations are absolutely necessary, or sometimes we learn the hard way, we're just not going to be ready. There are gifts to buy, dinners to plan, trees to decorate, events to schedule, and on and on and on. And let's be honest, it really feels good when we've made all the preparations properly. There's a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment. Unfortunately, for many people, these are the only kinds of preparations that they will make for Christmas, only external preparations that really don't have anything to do with the essence, the substance, the reality of Christmas. And let's be honest, I suppose this can happen to us as, as well, can it not? Can it happen to us we get all caught up in the external preparations and all the excitement and, and perhaps sometimes lose the real meaning of Christmas? And that's where our good friend John comes to visit with us every Advent. Our good friend John the Baptist, because he does everything he can to prevent that from happening. I call him a good friend because John just won't let us get away with such a shallow preparation for the birth of God's Son and the Savior of the world. And as you know, good friends always tell us the truth. So once again... Let us joyously listen to our good friend John as he helps us to prepare the way of the Lord. In order to prepare properly, our good friend John, first of all, tells us why we should prepare for his coming. Well, why should we prepare? Well, because he's God. That's a pretty good reason. Jesus Christ is God in human form. Isn't that the wonder of Christmas? If, if you don't know that... That's the awesomeness of Christmas. God becomes one of us. John says, prepare the way of the Lord. And when he says that, he's saying prepare the way of God. 
How do I know that? Well, not only from what all the New Testament says, but right from our text, John quotes the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, where the Hebrew word for Lord is Yahweh, which is the personal name for God in the Old Testament. And we see this truth again even in our Old Testament lesson, the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, where God says, Behold, I send my messenger, that would be John, and he will prepare the way before me. Me. God says that. So John, the baptizer, was sent to prepare the way for God. And yet it's obvious he was preparing the way for whom? Jesus. Yes, indeed. Because Jesus is God. God in human form. Again, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is this not the awesomeness, the amazement, the wonder, the mystery of Christmas? I must confess to you that I fear that we Christians do not reflect on this mystery as much as we should. We just kind of take it for granted in our secular, materialistic world. Oh, God becomes man. Ho, hum. Hey, how the Seahawks do it? And while I said that in a humorous way, and I speak as, for me as much as for you, it's really shameful that we don't reflect more on this awesome meaning of Christmas, that God becomes one of us. Yes, God. The God who out of nothing created this vast, complex universe became one of us. The God who is all-powerful, knows all things, became flesh and became weak and frail. God, who is pure spirit, became flesh. God, who is present everywhere, lived and walked on this little planet Earth. If we really understand this and believe this, doesn't this produce all it should and mystery? Is this an everyday occurrence? No, it is not. It is the wonder and amazement of Jesus Christ. And John reminds us, in this way we prepare properly then for his coming. Because you see, if we have Jesus, we have God. We don't have Jesus. We don't have God. And so we need to prepare for him. But there is more. John also says that we are to prepare for Jesus because of what he brings and what he gives to us, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. Another ho-hum moment, maybe? Forgiveness of our sins? Oh, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, in this secular, materialistic world, it is so easy to forget there's nothing in this world, nothing more important than God's forgiveness. Because nothing in this world other than his forgiveness can give us a relationship with God. Only God can overcome death and eternal damnation. You see, sin's always the problem. I hope you never get tired of hearing that, because you shouldn't. Sin is always the problem. Sin, living for ourselves instead of living for God. But you know, it wasn't always that way. God didn't make Adam and Eve to live for themselves. He made Adam and Eve to live for him. And then they made the choice to live for themselves. And it's been that way ever since with dire consequences, with death. 
Because you see, sin cuts us off from the holy and pure God. And he's a just God. He must punish sin. And that's why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to be punished for the sins of the world, for your sins and mine. Now, let's think about that again in the baby Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's God in human form. So when Jesus died on that cross, who died? God in human form. And think about the irony. The very God who was sinned against died on that cross for those sins. Isn't that stunning? The very God that we have sinned against came into our world in bodily form and died for those sins, canceling our debt that we might be raised from the dead. And John again quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says in verse 6, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Yes, what God did was not in some corner someplace. He did it publicly in the history of the world. In a real nation called Israel, crucified under Pontius Pilate, has been broadcast all over the world. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. So then why should we prepare for Jesus? Because he's God who has come into our world to save us from sin and its consequences. Thank you, John. But he has something else to say as well. He also tells us how to prepare for his coming. And he says it is by repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is not simply feeling sorry that we got caught in some sin, and now we have to suffer the consequences of it. Repentance is not feeling sorry that sin has messed up our life. That's really nothing more than self-pity. There's nothing honorable about self-pity, much less being godly. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul calls that kind of repentance a worldly sorrow. Chapter 7, verse 10. You don't have to be a Christian to feel bad that you've messed up your life. You don't have to be a Christian to have all kinds of regrets about the bad choices that you've made in life. There's nothing uniquely Christian about any of that. But true repentance is godly sorrow. A sorrow that comes in our inner being that, no, we have not lived up to God's expectations. A godly sorrow that knows we have offended the holy and pure God. And yes, even a godly sorrow is terrified by the threat of God's wrath and judgment against sin. As John says in our lesson, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verses 7 and 9. You see, true repentance realizes that there is a judgment day when every human being will stand before God, before Jesus Christ, and give an account of their lives. As Paul says in his letter to the Romans, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Chapter 3, verse 20. In other words, repentance is taking my sin seriously. Because God, takes my sin seriously, threatening to punish me for every sin of thought, word, and deed during my whole life. You see, then, we cannot be properly prepared for Christmas, much less the judgment day, unless we are truly sorry for our sins and confess them to God. However, that is not the end of the story. And that is not the end of repentance. 
being sorry for our sins and confessing them to God simply prepares us now to receive Jesus and what he has come to give to us, forgiveness of our sins. That's what Luke says. He says, John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the forgiveness of sins. That might not sound very comforting for someone who isn't bothered by their sins. It may not sound very meaningful for someone who doesn't fear God's wrath and punishment. I guess they'll have to learn what it means to fear his wrath and punishment on the judgment day. But for those who are sorry for their sins, for those who do fear God's wrath and punishment, could there be any greater, more sweet message than forgiveness from God? There is no greater message. The Greek word in our text that means forgiveness means to release. It means to send away. And that means when God forgives us our sins, he sends our sins away from us so they're no longer there. He dismisses them. How far does he send them away? I'm glad you asked. King David tells us in Psalm 103, verse 3, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, can it get any farther away? And Later on in this psalm, verse 10, he tells us in more prosaic language what he means by this. He says he does not deal with us according to our sins. I want you to think about a sin that rarely bothers you. Listen to these words. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquity. Isn't this stunning? Isn't this amazing? Think of all your sins, and God's not going to treat you according to what you deserve. He's not going to punish you for any of those sins because of Jesus Christ. He forgives us. As Paul says so beautifully in his second letter to the Corinthians, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Chapter 5, verse 19. Now, someone who is concerned about sin and God's wrath and punishment, what wonderful news, good news. And many of you know that the Greek word for gospel means good news. Indeed. And finally, and in conclusion, John tells us where we can find this forgiveness. Wouldn't it be horrible to tell us he forgives us, but where can I find it? Well, in our lesson for this morning, he says we can find it in our baptism, as Luke says. And he went into all the regions around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When people came to John confessing their sins and they were baptized, those sins were forgiven. That's what he says. It's also true for you. All of you who have been baptized, every single one of your sins has been washed away in the waters of your baptism and forgiven. As I'm fond of reminding you, you are a baptized, forgiven child of God. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, never forget that whenever you want God's forgiveness, whenever you crave God's forgiveness, and feel that burning in your heart that you want God's forgiveness. That forgiveness is as close to you as your own baptism. And every time you feel guilt welling up in your heart, you remember your baptism. And that sin that you feel so guilty about has been paid for and washed away in the waters of your baptism. And you see, with daily repentance, 
daily believing in the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has won for us and giving us in our baptism, you and I will be prepared. Prepared for his coming at Christmas and yes, even prepared when he returns to judge the living and the dead. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. You're a good friend. Once again, you have helped us to prepare for the way of the Lord. Amen. And now the peace of God that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. See the difference? Okay. Sermon number two from Brent Kuhlman. The text itself is the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, which reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but born of God. And the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the text that forms the basis of this sermon, entitled, The Word Became Flesh. Here is Pastor Brent Kuhlman. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text is from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Thus far the text. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Word, that's Jesus, and He's the eternal Son of God. He's been there from the beginning and beyond. And through the Word, Jesus, all things were made. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. Yes, word Jesus was there in the beginning doing all the God stuff. The Father speaks in the beginning. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. And the word that the Father speaks is Jesus himself. And with the word Jesus is the Holy Spirit. You see, Holy Spirit and word Jesus always go together. As the Father speaks his let there be, word Jesus is at work along with the Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life through Jesus himself. So in the beginning was the word, word God Jesus, the eternally begotten divine Son of the Father, begotten of his Father before all worlds, as the Nicene Creed just put it. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, with the Father by whom all things were made. So let there be no mistake, brothers and sisters, word Jesus is God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Everything then is just fine and dandy, isn't it? But wait, 
Wait just a minute. Word God Jesus then does the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the most audacious. God Word Jesus takes on flesh and dwells among us. Now that's pretty dicey stuff. He, God, Jesus, takes some big risks here. This opens up eternal word, God, Jesus, to all the rot and gunk and filth of this messy, messed up world. By doing this, it opens up eternal word, God, Jesus, to be rejected. All kinds of naughty people could then say no to him, push him around a little, and if they really wanted to, betray him, deny him, arrest him, kangaroo court him, and then, of course, do what with him? Murder him, all with the excuse that that's what's best. What kind of God? would ever allow that to happen. Oh, Allah sure wouldn't. I guarantee you that. Talk to any Muslim. And Allah would never allow that to happen to him. But eternal word God Jesus does. And we were the ones who did it to him. We, like King Herod, don't want rivals. We like being little gods. And so first we get rid of preacher John the Baptist. We make him shorter by a head. And then we get rid of... Jesus himself. We were the ones who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And if we could have, we would have shoved the Roman soldiers out of the way and we would have taken the sledgehammer in our hands and pounded those spikes as hard as we could, making sure that this troublemaker Jesus would never bother us again, never interrupt our lives ever again. And yet he does it and he did it. Eternal war word, God Jesus opens himself up to such wickedness by taking on our flesh. He insists on it. He won't have it any other way. He will deal with sinners in this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Christmas, that's Bethlehem. Eternal, without beginning and without end, God, word Jesus, takes on flesh. He comes to you. You don't go to him. You don't become God. God becomes man. And he comes all the way down, incarnated, in flesh, fully human, and yet fully God in one person. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, not Joseph. Born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, the creator of the universe becomes creature in this baby Jesus. He sets aside his royal robes and exchanges them for diapers. Eternal word God Jesus who reflects perfectly the glory of the Father and bears the very stamp of his nature takes on fingers, toes, hair, a brain, lungs, stomach, heart, and yes, even a spleen. The infinite becomes the finite. The eternal breaks into time. In baby Jesus, God rolls up his sleeves and bears his right arm for all the nations to see. And what do the nations see? 
they see a tiny baby lying in a manger, <coughs> nursing at the virgin's breast, cuddled in her arms. In this baby, as St. Paul writes to the Colossians, all the fullness of the deity dwell in bodily form. God-word Jesus takes on our human nature without stain or taint of sin in order to save sinners. That's the entire point. The incarnation is not some lark of a vacation from heaven. Instead, God-word Jesus dwells among us in order to save us. God is not angry with you. Really, he's not. If he were, he would have never taken on your flesh and blood. He would have never become man, born of a virgin. Again, the Nicene Creed confessed it faithfully, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and was made man, was made man. That's the good news of John 1.14. God dwells among sinners in order to redeem them. How? That's where it gets even dicier yet. He takes all your sin in his body, and then he carries it all to Calvary in order to be damned as the sinner in your place. God, word Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin, 2 Corinthians 5. He was cursed and condemned, Galatians 3. All your sin is his. All your hell is his. God, word Jesus, dies your death. That is why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he still dwells among us sinners. Lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age, he promises in Matthew 28. Yes, the crucified and risen word made flesh for sinners, Jesus, promises that all your sin is forgiven. Where? Well, in the sacrament. There he speaks again and he gives. He is his born of the Virgin Mary, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, body and blood to you, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, he gives his precious divine body and divine blood into your mouths, your body. He dwells in you. He becomes one with you. That you then may enter into great glory. That your flesh and blood, your skin and your hair, your hands, your feet, your stomach, your backside will reside in heaven as he does so that you can boldly defy the devil or whatever evil assails you. For bodied and bloodied with the Lord's body and blood, your entire bodies belong in heaven as heirs of heaven's kingdom. And of course, that will take place. We will see it with our eyes on the last day when Jesus reveals himself in glory and raises your bodies from the grave. Christmas consummated. The so what of the eternal word God Jesus becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. Have a joyous Christmas day. In the name of Jesus. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Big difference, isn't there? You preach Christ, it makes all the difference in the world. 
You don't have to engage in nonsense or adding to the scriptures or taking away from them. You can just preach the text straight. Good stuff. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and we're going to tune out for the holiday season and come back on uh, January 2nd. So just want to say thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening and supporting Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard, you know our email contact, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till next year, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen. Amen.